0: Well, let's let's bow our heads one more time in prayer. The subject before us is a uh, is a tough one. Lord, we are beggars for your grace, beggars for mercy, beggars for illumination in our minds and our hearts. Lord, I don't think there's a Christian here this morning who showed up not wanting to be more like Christ. So, Lord, please answer the cries of your people's hearts. We want to be more like Christ. Shape us by your word. Grant us to be holy like Christ is holy. Lord, I ask for the preacher that you would give him grace to preach with unction and humility and fear. And for the hearers, Lord, that you would grant them ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, minds to comprehend, the goodness of your word. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 26 and 27 this morning. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. The book that we're going to be studying uh, has a small chapter on our subject this morning, and it ask, actually asks it in, a, in the form of a question. Righteous anger Question mark. And so I thought I would pick up on that chapter and expand it a little bit for us and maybe give a promo for the book as well. So uh, Ephesians four twenty six and 27 read this. Uh, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. When I get mad at you, you never fight back, says the husband to his wife. How do you control your anger? I clean the toilet, she says. How in the world does that help? I use your toothbrush, (laughs) she says. I'm not speaking from personal experience. (laughs) I thought that would be a good introduction to a subject on anger. (laughs) Um, The world, however, seems to be a much angrier place than it was when I was a kid. Now, I'm only 40, so maybe some of you a little older than me can attest to that fact a little more. Americans especially seem to be teeming with anger at the things that are facing our country. We have social woes, economic woes, political woes, uh, not to mention the polarization of our culture, as we're forced to see everything through a racial lens, economic hardship caused by reckless government spending. You know, inflation is made in one place in America, Washington, right? Looming foreign wars, socialism on the rise, canceled culture, political tribalism, the weaponizing of medicine, not to mention churches looking like the world. Whole denominations seem to be in the balance here and now. All of these things and much more seem to be feeding into this kind of generally increased anxiety, polarization, confusion, and anger in our culture. Couple this with a, with a society that exhibits a very, very low tolerance for discomfort and high expectations for instantaneous gratification when 's the last time you paid with dollars and change in the grocery line and you heard the person behind you you 're taking too much time. This reality coupled with couple, coupled with the fact that we 've nearly lost all skill in public discourse, public debate when handling a difference of opinion all of these things mixed together are just ingredients for us to brew anger on every level of our existence. We're just angry, whether we know it or not. And we live our daily lives sometimes putting people under that petty tyranny. We grumble, and we put people under that tyranny. Well, with this sort of analysis of the world and its anger problems, it may be manifest on the surface that there's nothing redemptive about anger in the Christian's life. We may think that it's to be avoided, At all costs. Anger is sin, some may say. No qualifier. However, you may be surprised that the Bible does not think this way, at least entirely. There is a place for anger in the life of the Christian. One theologian states this, about the most ineffective person on earth would be one incapable of being angry. God has called us to be holy as he is holy. There is therefore as his image bearers on this earth a place for anger in our lives. We must replicate in a creaturely fashion the holy anger of an immutably holy, pure, and passionless God. The subject of our text is, Is how anger can be reoriented and redeemed in the Christian's life. Part of your formation as a Christian, as a well rounded Christian, is a healthy, well balanced, rightly regulated anger. This is deep heart work. And I I tremble at texts like this because on the surface they seem very clear. But once you dig down, it becomes a little more complex. So we're going to handle our text in three points. First, I want you to see anger is redeemed in the Christian's life. Secondly, anger is redemptive in the Christian's life. And third, anger is regulated in the Christian's life. So anger is redeemed, anger is redemptive, and anger is regulated. Well, the background of our text is obviously in the region of Asia, in Asia Minor, the Ephesian church. Ephesus was a very uh, popular port city, now on the western shores of Turkey. The city commanded the west end of the trade route in Asia, and by the time Paul reached Ephesus, the city was nearly three times as old as America is now, about 600 years old. They had conquered and been conquered. They had been involved in wars and politics and all the things that go along with being in a city in a place that old. Paul saw this major port city as a hub for getting the gospel out everywhere. His missiology, the way he viewed that place and how he targeted different areas is pure genius. Ephesus is listed as one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Moreover, the Ephesian church was, as we are, full of redeemed sinners. Now, in his letter, Paul devotes the first three chapters to doctrine. The book is nicely divided. The first three chapters are doctrine, establishing what a Christian should believe about the riches of grace in Christ Jesus. The second half of the letter, chapters 4 through 6, is focused on working out those implications by God's grace, in the life of the church, in your lives individually, and in our families. Chapter 4 begins by addressing the church. Paul exhorts the church to walk in unity, to grow in stature, and build itself up in love. Now, this context cannot be lost on us as we explore the issue of anger. It's in a community context of love that Paul commands us to be angry it's not the absence of love he then moves to address our lives individually we must no longer walk as the gentiles do in the futility of their minds verse 17 of chapter 4 we must put off the old self we must be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of god in true righteousness and holiness This context also cannot be lost on us. Not only is he addressing us in the context of the community of love, but he's addressing us as image bearers, being renewed in the spirit of our minds. How should we think about anger as a Christian? This putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new new self deals with the transformation, the reorientation and redemption of anger in our lives. Therefore, if you are, if the new man is to be well-rounded, Paul must address the issue of anger. So this brings us to our first point. Chapter 4, verse 26. A, be angry and do not sin. I want you to see first and foremost, anger is redeemed in the life of the Christian. Anger is redeemed in the life of the Christian. Paul begins his address on anger by quoting verbatim Psalm 4.4. For you eggheads out there, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, Paul quotes that directly here. No variations, no twists, no turns, no adding to it. He quotes directly Psalm 4.4. Now, some of your translations recognize this by putting quotes around it. Be angry and do not sin. The word comes to us in the form of an imperative. Be angry. The form of that word calls us to become or to do something. One source I read says the imperative is the mood of kings. This is King Jesus commanding you be angry. It is a direct command. Therefore, When he commands, we obey. There are situations, I think the apostle is stating here, where anger, God commanded anger, is the proper response in your life. Furthermore, this word is in the passive voice. This fact means that something is working in us, on us, to be produced by us. It's the imperative action in the passive voice. We could say it something like this. We are to work out what is being worked in. We are to work out what is being worked in. So this word, be angry, is a passive imperative. Now, this word exists as one of the most common words in the New Testament when dealing with our sanctification, It's the grammar of the life of a believer in the New Testament. So when Paul says be angry, it means that God is the one operating in you and at the same time you are working out what he's working in. He's the agent working in us. We are the patient being worked on. There's operation and cooperation. This imperative is a command directed to you, in which you're not ultimately the active doer, but rather the cooperator, the recipient of someone else's doing. Yet, yet, you remain responsible, and you have responsibility to act. Let me give you some other words in the New Testament that are passive imperatives. You're familiar with these. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Passive imperative. Be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. This anger that we're speaking of here in Ephesians chapter 4 is God-given anger. God-given anger. This anger is an anger of which the flesh knows nothing. The Holy Spirit is the source of righteous anger. Now, only the Spirit of God can do this. Righteous anger, then, we we, we shy away from this term as good rock-ribbed Calvinists. Righteous anger is the synergistic work of the Holy Spirit. We are working out what God is working in. Here we find the operation and cooperation of sanctification. Now, this can be a tricky subject. As you think about this, about sanctification, Questions come up in your mind. Are we completely passive in our sanctification? Who's living your Christian life? If God's working in you for you to work it out, who's really doing the working? One theologian may help clarify my muddy thinking here. He says this, believers hate sin, love God, and are, and are obedient and do good works. However, they do this neither on their own nor independently from God. In other words, he's saying something like this. Salvation is not a monergistic work, and now sanctification is all you. He's saying sanctification is God working first and foremost and primarily in you. He goes on to say, rather, the Holy Spirit having infused life in them at regeneration, maintains that life by his continual influence, stirs it up, activates it, and causes it to function in harmony with its spiritual nature. In one sense, we can attribute the ultimate cause of our sanctification to God as we contribute nothing. Yet in another sense, the scripture says, on the level of our activity... We move with the Spirit's obedience. We move with the Spirit in obedience. We work out, this is my way of working out the doctrine of sanctification. We work out what God works in. And in this way, we can see redeemed anger. God places anger squarely within his kingdom for his good purpose. You have to wrestle with the text. Be angry. So, God is redeeming anger for us. He places it in his kingdom for his good purpose. Now, this fact may clear up some things that are rolling around in your mind. As I was speaking with my wife uh, over the past week about this, she had a lot of questions, and I think other Christians do, about does this contradict other things in the Bible? I mean, five verses later, look at verse 31. Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Well, which one is it, Paul? Be angry. Put away anger. Is that a contradiction? Well, I think the distinction is plain. Unlike bitterness and slander and malice... Anger can have two completely separate sources. Bitterness is from the flesh. Slander is completely from the flesh. Malice is completely from the flesh. Anger, however, exists and can be operated in in two different categories. The source of righteous anger, verse 26, is the Holy Spirit. The source of sinful anger, verse 31, is the flesh. Righteous anger is from the Holy Spirit. Sinful anger is from the flesh. That teaches us a lot about anger. It's an emotion that is not in and of itself sinful. It's like a butcher knife. I can use it to make my family a meal, or I can use it to end someone's life. It's used in a way by by the person either in a righteous way or in a sinful way so in this way we can see anger being redeemed by the lord this brings us to our second point if anger is redeemed by god to be used in his kingdom for his good purposes how is it redemptive that's our second point anger then is redemptive in our lives What characteristics does righteous anger have? How is it redemptive? Well, I've I've nailed down five characteristics of righteous anger. Five characteristics of righteous anger. The first one is this. Anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive when it is directed at the right thing. The object of our anger must be the right thing. Well, first and foremost, righteous anger ought to be directed at ourselves and our sin. Ourselves and our sin. We are always safe as Christians when we are the worst sinners we know. We're always safe as Christians when we are the worst sinners we know. Paul, when he was addressing the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 7, spoke of the earnestness that godly grief produced in them. But he also spoke of something else. He spoke of indignation. What indignation godly grief has produced in you. The term is unambiguous. The Corinthians were angry at their sin. Godly grief not only produced in them an earnestness, but an indignation at their own sin. However, if you have another person in view, I think righteous anger must be directed at their sin as well and not the person. Mark 3, verse 5, is one example of this righteous anger at another person's sin. It's the account of the man with a withered hand, and it's recorded that Jesus asked those gathered at synagogue Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill it? But, the text says, they were silent. What was Jesus' response? He looked around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. Grieved at what? Their hardness of heart. You see an example in the Lord there of being angry at sin, grieved at their hardness of heart. Psalm 119, verse 53 is another example of this. Anger directed at another's sin. The psalmist says this, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. The psalmist recognized the horror of sin in others, and it seized him, it gripped him, Now the point is this, the Holy Spirit will never make you angry with someone else's sin and all of its destructive influence and at the same time make you apathetic toward your own. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit will never stir in you a righteous anger at someone else's sin and make you apathetic toward your own. That's the spirit of hypocrisy. The Holy Spirit always works from the inside out. The psalmist could be angry at sin in others because he was rightly dealing with sin in himself, first and foremost. So righteous anger directed at sin is a redemptive anger. That's our first attribute or characteristic of righteous anger. Second, Anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive when it is taken up for the right reasons. So we have the right thing, but it has to be directed at the right thing for the right reasons. The reason for our anger must be the right reason. And I have two, primarily. The first reason is the glory of God. The first reason is the glory of God. You know the passage, 1 Corinthians 10.31 You can finish it. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, even in righteous anger, the glory of God must be the chief reason for our anger. The Christian is dead to the world, dead to seeking their own personal glory. And he must take up righteous anger for the glory of God alone. Matthew Henry says this, if we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. And we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. Well, that levels about 99.9% of our anger, doesn't it? If the glory of God is not in view, we have no justifiable reason for anger. If the glory of God is not in view, you have no justifiable reason for anger. So the first reason is the glory of God. And I think you can guess the second, the good of man, the good of others. The second reason, a right reason for righteous anger is for the good of others. Righteous anger always has a good goal. It is always exercised for the good of others if it is for ultimately the glory of God. In John 2, verses 16 and 17, Jesus cleanses the temple. We always quote that as a, as a, as a passage of seeing the, the zeal of the Lord. He told those who sold pigeons, however, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His zeal for the glory of God played itself out practically For the good of others, he kept them back from sinning further. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Also in Acts 17, we see this very same thing. The good of others, righteous anger for the good of others. What drove Paul to reason in the synagogue with the Jews? Devout persons and go to the marketplace daily and eventually land himself in the Areopagus. Verse 16 tells us listen to verse 16, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. Worship not given to the one true God provoked Paul in a righteous anger that moved him, and I would say in love, to reason, to preach, to persuade his fellow man for their good. That's a beautiful text, beloved. I love that text. The provocation in Paul's heart was justified because he had in view the glory of God and the good of others. It was a just occasion for anger. One theologian writes this, The selfless anger which is disciplined into the service of Christ and of our fellow men is one of the great dynamic forces of the world. The selfless anger which is disciplined into the service of Christ and for our fellow man is one of the great dynamic forces of the world. Paul proved that point. He turned the world upside down. Righteous anger taken up for the right reasons is redemptive anger. It must be for the glory of God and it must be for the good of others. Third, third attribute of righteous anger. Anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive. When it is expressed to the right degree. Anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive when it is expressed to the right degree. The degree of our anger must be in proportion to the thing in view. Now, in our legal system, Lady Justice is an allegorical personification of morality in judicial proceedings. She has two main attributes. She is blind. She has a cloth over her eyes. And what else does she have? Scales a set of scales. One central principle behind this imagery is that the punishment must fit the crime. The crime that is weighed on the one side of the scale must be brought into balance by the weightiness of the judgment placed on the other side of the scale. These moral principles of our legal system find as their basis the precepts in Scripture. Scripture. The weighing of punishment in light of a crime comes from an understanding that not every crime is the same crime, though all crimes deserve to be punished. We feel that justice has been served when the punishment fits the crime, and we feel the sting of injustice when the sentence is disproportionately meted out in view of that crime. Premeditated murder, 20 counts, gets life in prison. For the first time in American history, a school shooter received life in prison rather than the death sentence. That is an injustice. The punishment does not meet the crime. The same is true in the case of righteous anger. In the same way, sin has varying degrees. Maybe this is a piece of your thinking that you haven't thought about. Some people say all sin is sin. True enough but there are some sins that are worse than others. Sin has varying degrees, and our anger toward it ought to as well. We can see this in Deuteronomy. Think about this. All of the classifications of the sins in the book of Deuteronomy, punishment for involuntary manslaughter was different than punishment for first-degree murder. Robbery was not punished like adultery. Property damage was not punished like idolatry. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a witness to this fact that anger must be expressed in the right degree. Think about this also. We see this in the cities who rejected Christ's apostles and their miracles and message. Matthew 10, verses 14 through 15 say this. He sends out his apostles. This is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to the nations. And he says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you have when you when you're out of that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. All men on judgment day will give an account that there may be a comparison of the punishments. The greater the light the greater the judgment for rejecting it. That's Jesus' point. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to experience the judgment of God. But so are these towns in Israel. Who had greater light? Greater judgment. Think about this in the case of also church discipline. We exercise righteous anger and a right degree in church discipline. If we were to excommunicate someone for something that was not worthy of excommunication. And think about our own church constitution. It gives steps for weighing out righteous anger in a right degree. Not everything warrants excommunication. Right, beloved? We see that in our own documents. So we've seen uh, righteous anger has to be pointed at the right thing for the right reason to the right degree Fourth, anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive when it has the right knowledge. Anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive when it has the right knowledge. Now, in keeping with the expression of righteous anger to the right degree, right degrees of expression cannot be accomplished without right knowledge. Rash judgment. Improper scales are normally caused by a lack of information. The proverb is true, Proverbs 14:29, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Not only is he a man of great understanding generally, but he has the information before him in order to make a slow, calculated, weighted judgment. Now, what understanding is the Lord lacking? None. No information. He has all understanding. Yet, yet in the revelation of his name, in the revelation of his name, we come to understand something about his anger. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. You know it. Slow to anger. How much does the Lord know about your situation? How much does the Lord know about injustice on the earth? And yet he is slow to anger. I think Psalm 103 verse 14 is a a beautiful word to us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. A man who is slow to anger is a man who operates with the knowledge of the frailty of human nature. And waits to gather all the facts. A man who is slow to anger is a man who operates with the knowledge of the frailty of human nature. And waits to gather sufficient facts. God is slow to anger. And he knows all things. So righteous anger has the right facts and is thus a redemptive anger. Well, what's the fifth attribute of righteous anger? Anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive when it is held for the right length of time. The right thing, the right reason, to the right degree, with the right knowledge, forever. Mm. Anger can be said to be righteous when it is held for the right length of time. Now, the length of our anger must be held no longer than necessary. And we're going to elaborate on this in just a moment. But suffice it to say here that there is, by God's appointment, a reasonable time limit given for your anger. A reasonable time limit given for righteous anger. So to sum up this this second point, the anger of the new man, this redemptive anger that is redeemed in the kingdom of God, is in one phrase, I think, sympathy with God. Intellectual and emotional sympathy with God. This is redemptive anger. God takes an emotion that the world uses to destroy and brings it into the subjection of the Holy Spirit and transforms it in us for his glory, for the good of others. John Stott says this. When we fail to be angry, we deny God, we damage ourselves, and we encourage the spread of evil. When we fail to be righteously angry as Christians, we deny God. We damage ourselves and our neighbors, and we encourage the spread of evil. So anger is redemptive. But if you're ready to hop on that horse and ride out into the sunset, guns ablazing. The scripture gives us a regulation for this anger. Anger, third point, anger must be regulated. Even righteous anger must be regulated. Because of the sinful flesh, because you still live in a body of death, righteous anger comes with warning labels. Dangerous things come with warning labels. How many labels, warning labels, does love have in the New Testament? A ton, because you can do major damage with it. Is it a good thing? Hallelujah. Can you destroy people with it? Yes, you can. Anger, good thing? Well, the scripture says so. Can you destroy people with it? Yes, you can. So anger must be regulated. Righteous anger must be regulated. Our text gives us three ways. It must be free from sin. It must have a time limit, and you must not give an opportunity to the devil. It has to be free from sin. You have to have a time limit, and you must not give an opportunity to the devil. You can see that in verse 26b. Be angry. Do not sin. So the first prohibition on anger is the categorical recognition that we must not sin in our anger. Do not sin is also an imperative. Be angry, imperative. Do not sin, imperative. That's the king's command. Now, different from the passive, it deals with our direct and ongoing responsibility. It's a plain command. In other words, since righteous anger is something God is working in you, you and I, as an ongoing process, must always have in mind the presence of the sinful nature. It must always be putting it to death. Do not sin. Sinful anger can range from passive-aggressive, underhanded comments and actions to outright explosive rage. Now, in between this is where most of us live our lives. We just walk around grumbling about everything. It's personally offended. Sinful anger is personally offended. It's proud. It's selfish. It's spiteful. It's revengeful. It harbors hurt, and it uses the fuel of bitterness as a purpose for living. I've met some people who just, unless they have something to fight and be mad at, they have no purpose for living. Sinful anger, when it's covered in this religious veneer, makes the person both lawgiver and judge with man-made precepts. James 4.12 warns against that. Against that, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? It is a lack of love. Sinful anger is a lack of love. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love is not provoked to anger. Sinful anger has nothing to do with love righteous anger does. The nature of the Christian and the nature of Christian love is always good will toward others. Sinful anger implies ill will. Ill will. It can imply nothing else. It's all about you at the end of the day. Jonathan Edwards, if you've never read this book, I encourage you to read this book. I believe it's the ninth uh, lecture on 1 Corinthians 13. It's his book, Charity and Its Fruits. Charity is just an old word for love. It's an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. I'd encourage you to read that book. He, he in that book says this, if love be an exercise, it will tend to keep down the tendency to be easily angered. If love be an exercise in our actions, in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our thinking about God, it will keep down the tendency to be easily angered. Love does not stand in opposition to righteous anger, beloved. Love does not stand in opposition to righteous anger. The two wholly agree. Christian love stands in opposition to all forms of sinful anger that lack Christian love. Could we say this? That righteous anger is a love-controlled, love-fed anger. Maybe another way of putting it is holy jealousy, a holy jealousy. I think we can. I think we can say those things. All sinful anger boils down to this. It all boils down to this. It's a throne issue in your heart. It's a throne issue in your heart. Who is on the throne? Sinful anger seeks to overthrow God in some way, in some situation, and establish an alternative rule. This is truly a game of thrones. It is the rule of the sinful flesh. Sinful anger at root is a desire to be God. Sinful anger at root is a desire to be God. It's a lack of submission to and joy and thankfulness for the providence and sovereignty of God in our lives. That's why we get angry in rush hour traffic. I'm not getting there fast enough and you're a complete idiot on the road. It's a lack of submission to God, a lack of joy and thankfulness for the providence and sovereignty of God in our lives. So this is our our first prohibition. Now, the book is going to go into that in way more detail. So just as a framework, it has to be without sin. Righteous anger has to be without those things. Our anger must be free from sin. Second prohibition, verse 26C. So the second prohibition on anger is its length the length of your anger. Verse 26c says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. One theologian says this, if a moment suffice for the anger of God, surely a day may be more than enough for yours. If a moment suffice for the anger of God, surely a day may be more than enough for yours. He's talking about Psalm 30 verse 5. His anger is for a moment. A day may be more than enough for yours. Again, in our regulation of righteous anger, we must recognize the state in which we live. We are battling the flesh. The word anger here, however, is not the same as the word anger in verse 26. In the first part, be angry, it's actually metastasized. It's Morphed. It's grown into something. As the day grew longer, the sin grew into, or the, the anger grew into something that wasn't what it was originally. And Paul's recognizing that. Paul is recognizing something about not letting go of even righteous anger, what it has the capability to do in your heart. Righteous anger is a lot like coddling your children. If you handle them too long... It can turn what is good into a little monster. If you've ever coddled your children and wondered, why in the world is this child so off the chain? Well, let them run around and bump their knees a little bit. Righteous anger in the hands of a not-yet-holy-sanctified man can be turned into the opposite of what he originally intended. Has anyone ever felt... The weight of Romans chapter 7. I believe one brother prayed it this morning. I believe Jackie prayed it. Romans 7. I don't understand my own actions. I do what I don't want to do. But the very thing I do, I hate. How could I stand against abortion so long and afterward it leave me more bitter than broken? I started out with a righteous anger. Why am I so bitter now? That's because righteous anger was not put to bed. God recognizes this about us and gives us a practical way to rightly handle righteous anger. Now we made mention of this earlier when we stated that anger can be said to be righteous and redemptive when it's held for the right length of time. We must at the end of the day let it go and give it back to God. We run the risk of cherishing it above God if we don't. If we don't give our anger back to God, even righteous anger, you run the risk of cherishing it. There's something about the solitude of the night when you're laying there on your bed and all, your, all the day's events are just running through your head. You run the risk of allowing what was good to be turned into something evil. Your flesh can begin to cherish the feeling of anger Rather than the God of anger. That's the trickiness of your flesh in handling something good. You can begin to cherish the feeling of anger. That feels good. To be mad. Rather than cherishing the God of anger. You run the risk of cherishing it above God. It also threatens your spiritual health. Because, let's just face it, none of us are balanced in here. Okay? None of us have it all together. What's the old phrase uh, Luther says? We're all like drunk peasants falling off the donkey on the left side or the right side. That's what we are, beloved. God recognizes that. Listen to Solomon's wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7.16. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be angry about the things God is angry about, but give them back to him before the day ends. Do not think, beloved, do not think you are wiser than God and can carry that feeling beyond the boundaries that God has set. Don't think you're wiser than God and can carry that feeling beyond the boundaries that God has set. Charles Bridges says it this way. In the exercise of Christian graces, there may, there may be danger of extremes. Boldness may be on the verge and turn into rashness. Benevolence, love, into indiscriminate waste. Honesty can be turned into weakness. In all these and many other details, the scriptural line seems to be passed meaning we transgress it all the time. And the warning is justly applied, be not overly righteous. Now, none of us in here have been cage-stage Calvinists, have we? We've not come to the doctrines of grace with all the grace in the world among our brothers and sisters. But if you are a cage-stage Calvinist right now, take note. You turn the doctrine of sovereign grace into a baseball bat to beat your brother and sister over the head in love. Speaking the truth in love, brother. I know none of us have ever acted that way. But think about it. That's a grace that we turn and go past the line. But at the end of the day, if you refuse to give back to God those things which he has commanded, you interfere with God. If at the end of the day you refuse to give back to God those things which, we, which he has commanded you to give back to him, you interfere with God. You give him no room. Righteous anger, when it's not given back to God, easily turns into cherished anger and personal vengeance. It becomes about you. Look how righteous I am, Lord. I'm so angry at the things you're angry about. And God's like, give it back to me at the end of the day because I'm the one in control. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, the scripture says. Give place, move out of the way to the wrath of God. Give place to the wrath of God, for it is written, finish the text, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Unless you commit right judgment to the Lord, and that means giving it back to him from the heart at the end of the day, You are doing nothing more than trying to take from him what is his. You are trying to take from him what is his. Vengeance. And you're trying to make it your own. You're seeking your own vengeance. And you're giving no room for him. This is the point where that subtle shift has taken place. From cherishing the God of anger to cherishing the feeling of anger. If you hold on to it, you've made it your own. And you've not given it back to him. It's at that very moment you were in danger of this third prohibition. The third prohibition. You give place to the devil. Look at our verse again. Verse 26, 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity or place to the devil. Now the word opportunity in some translations says the word. It says place there. And it literally means to have place or space in our minds and in our relationships, in our lives, in our fellowship. Cherishing anger is allowing Satan to rent space in your brain. And thus you drive a wedge between you and God, you and your brother and sister in Christ, and you can drive a wedge in the church. Satan, think about this, Satan only needs a beginning just a, just a hair of a beginning, just a little space. And what does he do? He wiggles in, he widens it out, and he makes more room for himself. And he divides people over the smallest chink in the armor. A toehold of anger becomes a chokehold of death. Satan, working on your anger, can make you believe, say, and do anything. Satan working on your anger can make you say, believe, and do anything. Some of the most stubborn people are those who give themselves over to the devil by anger. How easily, beloved, could we guard against the devil if we gently yield to one another in love? How, how, much, how much space do we give him in our fellowship, in our lives, but not putting to bed every night anger. Well, beloved, this is anger regulated. Righteous anger must have no sin. It must be laid down at the proper time and thus guarded against giving the devil a place in your life. So we've seen anger redeemed, anger redemptive, and anger regulated. Well, in closing, I, I want to give just a few observations, things that kind of hopefully we can take home with us. I want you to see first and foremost, and I think in the Reformed tradition, this is one of those uh, things we just don't touch, okay? We're logical people. We think logically about everything. But God commands our emotions. God commands our emotions. That means emotions matter to God. Emotions matter to God. Far from shirking all forms of emotion in the Christian life, God sets out in his divine purposes to redeem your emotions. To redeem your emotions. What greater picture of a redeemed humanity could we present to a culture that founds truth on emotion than having a hearty and well-controlled emotional life founded on the truth? Being sovereign over your emotions, we must yield to God's wise dealings and instructions in them. If our emotional life is not being redeemed, you're not being redeemed. It's a part of you that God is addressing as a child of God. God will leave no stone unturned in your life. But two, righteous anger is a Christian fully alive. Righteous anger is a Christian fully alive. It is a God-given emotion. It's a God-given emotion that allows for the full expression of a redeemed heart. Peace and appeasement are not the same things. Peace and appeasement are not the same things. Listen to F.F. F. Bruce here. A man totally destitute of indignation is a maimed sample of humanity. A man totally destitute of indignation is a maimed sample of humanity. In such a world, he goes on to say, as this, the truest peacemaker may have to assume the role of a peacebreaker as a sacred obligation. I think his point is this. We ought to prefer wrestling with righteous anger than weeping over apathy and compromise. We must prefer wrestling with righteous anger than weeping over apathy and compromise. Righteous anger is the Christian fully alive, fully expressive of the holiness of God in his life. Well, third observation, for this purpose, God has armed us with anger that we should, as the old uh, church father Chrysostom says, baptize the whole blade into the devil's breast. God has armed us with anger that we should baptize the whole blade into the devil's breast. There, Chrysostom says, bury the whole sword up to the hilt. Yea, if thou wilt, hilt and all, and never draw it out again. But add yet another, and another, and another. Righteous anger is given to us as a weapon of war against the enemies of our souls. Well, beloved, make war. Make war. War, give no quarter. Hack, agag to pieces. God has armed us with anger to do that, to baptize the whole blade in the devil's breast. Observation number four. If we really have a clear view of sin and we are truly angry at it, I think it will make us strive longer and more diligently with those who are enslaved to it. If we really have a clear view of sin and we are truly angry at it in a righteous way, it will make us strive longer and be more diligent with those who are enslaved to it. How does does a physician who truly hates the destructive nature of cancer forsake his post when his patient is on their deathbed? His righteous anger at the disease fuels his love for the patient. Though the condition and the patient are nearly indistinguishable, you can't tell them apart. Men are riddled with sin, eaten alive with it. Every organ is corrupt. The most useful Christians in this world have been those who had a healthy, righteous anger at sin. Paul turned the world upside down when he saw men worshiping idols. Let me put it in the vernacular. If sin ain't that bad, the gospel ain't that great. If sin ain't that bad, the gospel ain't that great. Righteous anger wrapped in love is gospel fuel. Gospel fuel. How dare the heathen worship anything other than the one true God? That's gospel fuel. Well, this ought to drive us to prayer. When we see how easily righteous anger can be imbalanced in our life, we have to be extremely prayerful and in the right frame of mind when those opportunities arise in our hearts. We have to be Prayerful. Well, lastly, I think righteous anger teaches us to live one day at a time. Live one day at a time. Sufficient for the day are its troubles, Matthew six thirty four. Do not anticipate tomorrow's frustration with today's anger. Do not let it carry on into the night. You will solve nothing. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You have to seriously ask yourself, even in your righteous anger, how much anger is enough anger? One hour? Two hours? A whole day? Should we store it up? Where where will your anger end if you do not lay it down soon? Well, beloved, I pray the Lord use these words to stir our hearts, and to also make us hungry to study together uh, the book, The Heart of Anger. I think that's going to be a good study for us. And uh, may we do that for the glory of God and the good of others. Okay? Let us pray together. Lord, a lot has been said this morning. A lot of things maybe are new to us. A lot of things maybe are revisited. We may be convicted and challenged, Lord, and we praise you for that. That's your spirit at work in us, making us more like Christ. So we give you glory, Lord, for the work you've done in your word. Please, Lord, help us not to soon forget these things. May you glorify yourself. May we hold righteous anger in a right way that brings you glory and does good to the souls around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.